Just 10 minutes north of Claremont, New Hampshire, is the state's longest-running radio station. FM 94.7 WCNL Country. Its call letters stand for Newport, Claremont, and New London. And rumor has it that in 1984, somebody kept calling into the station anonymously each time he requested the song Bad to the Bone by George Thorogood. Over. And over. And over again. And if you haven't memorized the lyrics to Bad to the Bone, allow me to refresh your memory. First one starts like this. I'm going to read it like a beat poem. On the day I was born, the nurses all gathered round. They gazed in wide wonder at the joy they had found. The head nurse spoke up, said, leave this one alone. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone. When these requests started to come into the radio station, it was 1984, and of course we know that this was the year of two disappearances in the town of Claremont, Bernice Cordemanche and Ellen Freed. In that context, these lyrics take on an ominous meaning. There was talk through the valley that nurses were being targeted, as Bernice and Ellen both worked in that field, which makes that opening verse all the more terrifying. Was the Valley Killer targeting nurses? You're listening to Dark Valley, an investigative series from Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell. This is episode four. Dark Valley is possible because you listen. Be an advocate for these cases by rating and reviewing Dark Valley. It really does make a difference. Episodes are released weekly, but if you want to binge the first seven episodes, sign up for our subscription show on Apple Podcasts and get exclusive access to bonus content. Here's Eileen once more, the nurse who worked alongside Ellen back in the 80s. I know there there was some speculation at the time if they were targeting nurses or stuff, so everybody was being a little more diligent. Um, I know as far as people going to their cars at night and things like that, maintenance and different people were walking, making sure they walked together and that kind of thing. 
as far as the community, I think everybody was, you know, a little shocked and a little more cautious for a while. You know, there's been all kinds of speculation. It's hard to say. Who knows? They've speculated whether it was one of the serial killers that traveled all around the United States. Oh, there was all kinds of rumors. There were there was one, um, especially about a gentleman over in Kellyville. And I had heard of that individual in Kellyville. Do you happen to know a name? Uh, he was highly investigated. Um, yes, his name was. There's that name again, and redacted for reasons that will become clear. Jim, as I'm calling him, was an eccentric man who lived at the edge of town, in a dilapidated Victorian. Jim had inherited his mother's house. Several people have told me that the house itself was odd. Jim had posted all these signs on his property saying stuff like ladies welcome or violent declarations to the passersby. Here's Dr. John Philpin once more. He was the original criminal profiler. Dr. Philpin began to allude to this Jim. I could tell he was trying hard not to portray too much. They had, uh, New Hampshire authorities had uh, generated a suspect. He had a car for sale. And so uh, I decided to go look at the car. That was a legitimate reason. And uh, they said that they would uh, watch me uh, from a distance. And I uh, did. I went to see this uh, car. And I started to approach the car, and the for sale sign had been taken off. And, and this guy was uh, pretty protective of his property. And so I stopped dead in my tracks and turned around and, and, and left. But the names would come up, you know, the suspects would come up, and there'd be reasons why uh, as they came up. I guess that was the biggest role I was playing was, you know, is this person capable? person uh, uh, bright enough, uh, strong enough, whatever. I, I think those were the kinds of things that in the beginning, it's certainly that I, that I was looking at. So you're you're referring to a person uh, we both know the name of, but I'm redacting their name. I'm going to call them Jim, but off mic, uh, we're talking about right? Yeah. So I had a hell of a time actually finding his name. So his name is not out there. But the reason why I want to discuss him is because it's all over message boards um, that there's this like Kellyville killer who lives in a creepy house. There is a gentleman who suffers from mental illness that would um, render him vulnerable to attracting people's attention that might uh, frighten them. There are a few good reasons why Jim was considered a person of interest. Jim knew Bernice. He worked with Bernice's father at the woolen mill and had plenty of opportunities to meet her. Bernice would often sit in her father's office and wait for a ride home after school. We also know that Jim had the opportunity to see or interact with Ellen Freed. His mother was a patient at Valley Regional Hospital, and he would often go visit her there. And of course, Ellen worked as a nurse there. But we don't know for certain if Jim ever actually met Ellen. 
but Jim exhibited some pretty bizarre behavior. There's one anecdote that goes like this. Jim went to a diner in Claremont, sat down at a table, and ordered two coffees. One for himself, and one for his friend. He then proceeded to have a full conversation with a person only he could see. And naturally, this was fuel for gossip in Claremont. He also had a history of making women uncomfortable by sending them love letters and repeatedly calling them or showing up at their places of work. Jim never behaved violently towards women, but sexual harassment and stalking gave the community and law enforcement reason enough to be suspicious. What's more is that Jim had an extensive collection of knives, which he displayed in his home. And in hindsight, we know that the Valley Killer's M.O. was to use a knife. While nurses were on high alert in the valley, it must have been terrifying for all the women in that area. No one knew who would be next. Or when? Would it be a mother doing some afternoon grocery shopping? A waitress taking out the garbage at the end of her shift? Life in the valley, balanced on a knife's edge. One evening, something unexpected happened. I got another message from Ellen's sister, Gretchen. She said she has another sister, named Carrie. Carrie, she said, would be willing to talk with me. All good? Feel comfortable? Yeah. Hi, yeah, I'm Ellen Freed's sister. We grew up in the Catskills in New York State, in a tiny town. It was idyllic, very rural upbringing, beautiful school, uh, sports, forest, hiking, swimming in the rivers. You know, she would go out in the woods, we'd build forts, we'd um, explore together. I even remember her throwing pebbles on the driveway to toughen her bare feet. Being eight years younger, I worshipped her for that. Yeah, so she went to uh, Colgate University and then took some classes at Cornell as well. Um, and eventually did nursing school at just Orange County Community College um, because she had some prereqs done already. Um, so she came and she lived um, outside of our small town in an even smaller community and went, drove to Orange County Community College uh, with her windows open even in the winter because she didn't want to feel she was inside that long every day. So she, she was definitely um, an outdoor person, a down-to-earth person, an artist, a musician. An artist? Yeah, so she would do uh, pretty much everything from, you know, I remember her doing woodblock prints, um, leaf prints. I still have some cards that she made. Um, she would draw her own postcards and send you. So yeah, she she had very tough hands. Um, I remember as a kid thinking, oh, I want my hands to look that tough someday. Now I wish they didn't look this tough, but you know, it's a different story then. Oh man, she's so cool. And I had read somewhere in some news article that she may have played the banjo. Is that true? She did play the banjo. Yeah, she played the banjo and um, 
harmonica and a little bit of guitar, but yeah, she was learning banjo. And um, she she had a lot of good teachers. Our cousins were all uh, were all musicians as well. So yeah, and, uh, actually the banjo she had was uh, her boyfriend at the time had had actually made for her. So I had talked to one of her colleagues at Ballet Regional, who's actually still at that hospital, uh, but she seemed to think that Ellen was engaged at the time of her disappearance. Not that I knew of, but that doesn't mean she wasn't, right? So she was a private person, and um, what was between her and her her man at the time, I don't know. I didn't know them as being engaged. So. And what was her boyfriend like? Did you ever meet him? I did meet him, but only briefly. So I, I last saw Ellen when um, I was taking a, I was coming up to work for Outward Bound up in Maine. And she came with us all the way up to uh, drop me off. And um, I, I didn't, I was working for them for the summer and then heard she was, yeah, she was missing. I made a call home when I came in from an island I was working on and um, I only met him uh I, I believe after the investigation was started um and he he was pretty like he lived out in the country i had heard and was like kind of disconnected from the claremont area yeah i think so yeah ellen was you know ellen was private she was a bit of a hippie very much so wouldn't have a phone in her apartment caused many arguments we wanted her to have a phone <laughs> <laughs> but there you have it. So that answers one of my questions, like why she would have stopped that evening at the market to use the payphone so late at night. Yeah, she and my other sister were really close um, and she uh, lived really simply. She didn't have a phone. She didn't want one. I can't imagine her these days with cell phones. But um, so she would, yeah, make a habit of uh, being in contact with my sister and they had a planned call and she went and made that call. And then has your sister shared with you at all, like what they discussed that evening? Uh, from what I remember back then, um, you know, they talked about the usual, you know, they talked about everything. They were two years apart. And as my sister would say, there was never a time when she didn't have Ellen. Um, so it was a usual conversation. She did mention that at some point, you know, Ellen said, oh, wait, you know, that was weird, is really all she said, and then made sure her car started. Um, what was unclear to me, um, and you might know this, I don't know this. At the time, I was thinking it was one of those drive-up payphones. Dear, probably too young to even remember those, but a drive-up payphone where it's just kind of hanging there, and you, that was the impression I got. I didn't get the impression she was standing in a phone booth. Now this is interesting, a drive-up payphone. This detail makes me completely restructure the mechanics of Ellen's abduction. She never left the phone off the hook and went to start her engine. It seems she also never explicitly said a vehicle had passed by Leo's market, then turned around and passed by again. I followed up with Ellen's other sister, Gretchen, the one who last spoke to her that night, and here's what she wrote. The night she disappeared, we were talking on the phone after her work shift in Claremont. She was at a drive-up payphone. 
We talked for about two hours that night. At the end of the call, something made her nervous. She said to let her start her car before hanging up, but she didn't say what she was nervous about. Then she started her car, and we said goodbye. After a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. Something made her nervous. I guess over time we've shaded in what could have happened. I feel like I've got even less of a handle on what Ellen saw that night. But because we learned that Ellen would have pulled up to the right side of Leo's building, and the driver's side door would be pretty close to the phone, it would have been hard to open that door and pull Ellen out. So again, I think it's most likely that her attacker either quietly got into Ellen's car from the passenger side, or back seat, or he followed her home. Uh, I picture her actually in my mind, I, I think she went home first and changed, but I'm not sure. I don't know if she changed at the hospital, if there was a locker room. I do know they found one sandal. I think, you know, we were asked to look through her, her things and see if we knew what wasn't there when she was first missing. Um, she had a pair of, you know, old school hippie sandals, thick leather, leather multi-straps across the foot. Um, they definitely weren't there. I guess I picture her changing, either at work or going home to do it, heading out, calling my sister. Either someone pulled in the lot and pulled out or went by and came back or she noticed something and then, um, you know, made sure her car started and hung up. And then I guess what I picture is all from uh, Jane's uh depiction of what happened to her, which I have no idea if that's what happened to Ellen, but I do picture someone uh, coming up, talking to her, asking her a question like, yeah, does the phone work? What time is it? Whatever. And grabbing her. And she was a slight gal. I mean, she was not, she was not a big person. Um, tough, but um, I imagine, you know, she may have tried to talk them out of whatever was going on. You know, any anyone who works in a rural hospital knows you deal with mental health and alcohol abuse patients all the time. Um, but she was nice, helpful, open, right? So if she started to pull away and someone said, hey, she would probably stop. Yeah. I mean, most people would, right? If they're, I would. Yeah, I wouldn't anymore. And I mean that. Like my daughter, her car broke down up here in rural Maine. We were going to come and help, but it was a full 40 minutes away. 
It was probably, she was driving back to college. It was probably about midnight. And I told her, even if a cop pulls up, you do not get out of that car. You do not roll down your window more than a fraction of an inch. You can hand your ID through that. If he gives you a hard time, you say, absolutely not. You're staying there until your father arrives. And I kept her on the phone the whole time. Because to me, if you're out there by yourself, you're in danger. Yeah, it affects you forever. You know, you're, is forever. I mean, I'll help anybody, but I'm also very wary. And it, it certainly affects your life in a lot of ways. I think, I think it'll affect each person differently as well to have a tragedy like that. I can't see that kind of amazingly tragic and maybe rare crime as something that is rare. I don't see it that way. I think of it as something that can happen to anybody at any time. And I think there are a lot of people in this world who things like this have happened to. And I start to feel like when I meet them, I'm like, oh, this person's never had a heavy tragedy or oh, this person has. But I don't know if I'm right or not all the time. But something, you know, that that affected them deeply, you know, maybe it's, you know, a, a, that violation or that stealing or from you or whatever but yeah and everyone feels it differently and everyone I think thinks they're the only one who feels it like they do maybe that's true but and also appreciate people while you have them I mean I really you know kind of a lame thing to say but in all in all truth people can be gone like that and so yeah appreciate those you have On September 19, 1985, two unnamed locals were jogging along the banks of the Sugar River in Kellyville, a small area between Claremont and Newport. A decommissioned railway runs along the river, which is now used as a jogging path. A large covered bridge stretches across the river. And about a quarter mile from this bridge, a tributary brook snakes through the underbrush. It was here that the couple discovered the partially buried skeletal remains of a human body. It wasn't until October that Dr. J. Clark of Concord identified the remains from dental records as that of Ellen Freed. No clothing was found with her body, except one sandal that her sister mentioned. But that I did hear conflicting things about whether or not um, you know, on the rib cage and things, there were, you know, if you get stabbed 20 something times, they nick the bones because they kind of go wild. And this guy had sort of a pattern, they think, of how things happen. They also, of course, slit the throat. But um, yeah, at first we had heard that 
she didn't have that kind of chips on her bones. And I, I don't know if that turned out to be true or not. I just remember that at the time when she was found, um, that they had said that. And, you know, so I, I don't know what that means, but I remember thinking maybe she didn't go through exactly what Jane did later, but then, you know, you have no idea. Because Ellen was not big. If she got, if it made, you know, her ribs were right there under the skin. She had like no fat. So I don't know. Like, did she talk the person down a little bit, but then ended up, you know, throat slit anyway? Did she try? I don't know. I don't know what happened. So we don't have a cause of death for Ellen Freed. The papers noted that there are many methods that wouldn't leave evidence on the skeleton. Stabbing, perhaps, or her jugular vein being severed. According to the Attorney General, quote, the autopsy revealed the cause of death to be undetermined because of the skeletal remains that were found. However, the circumstance of her disappearance and the findings at the scene were consistent with Ellen having been sexually assaulted before her death. The case has been treated as a homicide. There may be other factors that the public is not privy to that informed this theory, but it seems none of the other victims are believed to have been sexually assaulted. Here's Dr. Philpin once more. That's the first time I ever heard an allegation of sexual assault in the Ellen Freed case. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that there was no clothing found with Ellen. Uh, but that's like a pretty big leap. Uh, it is a big leap without any kind of uh, physical indication. I'm sorry, I, I don't, there was never any mention of anything like that, and there wasn't enough left to uh, come up with that kind of kind of decision. And so I, I don't, literally, that's the first I've heard of that. It's on the Attorney General's website. Oh, New Hampshire Attorney General? Yeah. Who is in charge of all homicide cases in the state. Oh my God, don't get me started. Well, that's, you got me started. New Hampshire is a little different from other states in terms of how they handle homicides. Usually the investigation into suspicious deaths or homicides is done by municipal, local, or state police department, and sometimes even the FBI. But in New Hampshire, a homicide case will go directly to the attorney general, and the attorney general will oversee that investigation. Recently, the Assistant Attorney General of New Hampshire, Mr. Strelzen, was kind enough to answer a few basic questions, and I'll definitely go over those later, but I wouldn't say that his answers demonstrated a high degree of transparency. Written into the state legislature is the public's right to request government records. It's called the Right to Know Law, passed in 2001, and pursuant to the Federal Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. It's an investigative journalist's bread and butter. Despite this, New Hampshire has been notorious for rejecting right-to-know requests on open cases, citing that it would harm the integrity of the investigation, or obstruct a fair trial, or invade someone's privacy. And those are valid reasons, don't get me wrong. But it becomes a problem when the government starts issuing what's called blanket exemptions, or just denying requests without any meaningful reason, because they can. The opinion of the New Hampshire Supreme Court states that, quote, we construe provision favoring disclosure broadly while construing exemptions narrowly, end quote. 
and goes on to say that police investigative files will be subjected to a six-pronged test under FOIA. Most notably, in order to deny a right-to-know request, the agency must demonstrate that, quote, proceedings are pending or reasonably anticipated, end quote. In other words, the attorney general or the police can deny a request if they're about to make an arrest, or if the case is being actively worked on and results are reasonably anticipated. And this is important because the court noted that their opinion was to, quote, eliminate blanket exemptions, end quote. Since then, a nonprofit called Center for Public Integrity wrote a 2015 review giving New Hampshire an F grade for public access to government information, which ranks New Hampshire 49th out of all states in this country. Lack of disclosure is a real problem, especially in cold cases as old as the ones we're discussing here. And I think it can be reasonably assumed that the state police cannot demonstrate that proceedings are pending or reasonably anticipated. I've submitted right-to-know requests for all the cases we're going to talk about this season. As of this recording, I submitted FOIAs in September of 2022. It took the state of New Hampshire eight whole months to return a thin file on each case, containing only some old press releases and scant newspaper clippings that I already had access to. In short, they only released what had already been public. And look, I'm not saying all this because I think I, me, a lowly podcaster, deserves this information, and I'm going to swoop in and solve the whole shebang. But it's not only prevented other journalists and private investigators from accessing information and making progress in these cases, but also communicates to the victims' families that they don't deserve answers that it's okay for them to sit in the dark for 40 plus years. Jane herself is explicit about how her own investigation has been at best shrouded in secrecy and at worst completely misguided and mishandled. And we'll talk about it at length in a later episode. I guess I just want to state for the record, I'm pretending I'm in a courtroom, that I think transparency is important. And everything I learn, I share with Jane and with the families I'm in contact with in a responsible, fact-based manner. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. Jane and I pull up to the covered bridge in late afternoon. It's a warm, breezy day, and the Sugar River turns to rapids beneath the bridge. Back in 1985, the Eagle Times noted that this site could have been reached by Route 103 or Route 11, but the tributary where Ellen's body was found was, quote, spanned by only four railroad ties with protruding metal spikes. It also noted that the site could be accessed from across the river on Chandler's Mill Road, which is how Jane and I got there. But you'd have to drive across the old covered bridge. And this bridge, complete disrepair at the time. So investigators believe that whoever took Ellen here must have either had an all-terrain four-wheel drive vehicle or force-marched her while she was still alive. Jane and I gingerly enter the covered bridge. Was on the other side. Yeah. Ooh, this bridge is uh, 
a little creepy. That is creepy. Ew. So do you think, oh. Do you think Ellen had to walk through here? She had to have. With this guy forcing her. She had to have. There's no way. Unless he took the chance and drove it. But didn't they say there was missing boards? Yeah. Because this was redone. Right. So there was missing boards, so the probability of him driving down here was very slim, if not at all. Right. It's a pretty long bridge. It is. And at night? Oh, God. That must have been terrifying. I don't know. Especially if she didn't know this bridge of where it went. She was new to the area. So why here? Why did he pick this? I don't know. It wasn't like it was around the corner from where she may have been abducted. Not really. It's like a good nine, ten minute drive from Jarvis Lane. How scared she must have been walking over that bridge. Jesus. At night. Mm-hmm. In the dark. I mean, it's dark and spooky walking through that bridge during the day. Yeah. Gosh, you really know how to pick the locations, huh? It's like... <laughs> It's like he was trying to scare them. You know, huh? Seriously. It's like he wanted to see fear in them. Wonder if he visited after. Yeah, that's a good question. Look, there's a butterfly. Okay, so I have to interrupt Jane to explain something. Jane's always had a fascination with butterflies. She talks about them a lot. Butterflies turn into a butterfly where butterflies, when butterflies are... Is a butterfly butterflies around? (laughs) This got me curious, so I asked her why butterflies are important to her. Butterflies have always been important to us because it's like, um, um, you start off as a caterpillar and then you, you turn into a butterfly and and you end up flying around and being beautiful and and that's um that's just always been you know something that we're always connected to we're, we're butterflies and we always thought when butterflies were flying around they were lucky especially if they landed on us it's hard to put into words why a symbol is meaningful they're pretty common metaphoric devices often signifying rebirth or resurrection. But throughout production on this series, butterflies came up constantly and at pivotal moments in our investigation, like now. Just kinda came over and it's back. It's circling you, Jane. Oh my God. (laughs) It's circling us. It's coming back. Oh my God. 
definitely a sign. See, we start talking about butterflies. Yeah. So Ellen knows what we're doing too. Thank you, Ellen. It's gone. kind of weird because um, me and my mother always, I mean, we posted posters, we put posters around and we seen her, you know, with a picture. And This is Toby, Bernice's boyfriend. We kept driving back and forth between Newport and Claremont, just trying to find any of evidence of where she would have gone. It just, it was, uh, it was fruitless. It was a waste of time. And then one day um, we saw a shoe on the side of the road that um, we knew it wasn't hers, but it just gave me a feeling that she was in that area. And really, she was within a mile from that shoe, the whole... Then I was never even informed of her death. I was actually standing in the um, the Levi store with a new girlfriend two years later when they found her body and I heard it over the radio. And I was like, wow, somebody couldn't even notify me. Cowhole Road is where she was found, yep. If you come out of Cowhole Road and you take a, a right and you come all the way down the hill, you end up at um, Route 11. But from what I understand, it's not too far from the very end of that road where it turns into a four-wheel drive road. It's a big popular hunting area. And was that an area that Bernice had been to before? Like, would she have gone there? Or do you think she was taken against... No, she was taken there. She would not have gone there. She had no idea where that was. Seven months after Ellen's remains were found, and nearly two years after she went missing, Bernice's body was found on April 19, 1986, just off of Cat Hole Road, which was 15 or so minutes northeast of Claremont, in an area called Kellyville. Toby says that April was bow season, and Hunter was the one who found Bernice. I don't know a lot about the details. I know my son-in-law, my new son-in-law, was one of his best friends that actually found her. Because so much time had passed, Bernice's body was badly decomposed, so her identity and cause of death weren't readily apparent. Clothing was found with the body, and though we don't have confirmation that these were the articles found, we do know that Bernice was reported missing, wearing a blue jean jacket, pants, and suede shoes. Dr. J. Clark, a forensic dentist in Concord, positively identified the remains as Bernice's via dental records. Later, Dr. Henry Ryan of Augusta, Maine, performed the autopsy, and he determined that Bernice had been stabbed to death with wounds to her neck and her chest. Bernice was found about four miles away from Ellen in Kellyville. As we've established, this is where Jim lived. He would perhaps have been familiar with the woods and would have known this rather hard-to-find road. And we should know. It took Jane, her friend Amanda, and myself a very long time to find it. But when we did, we wished we hadn't. Wow. 
so we're pulling onto like a super narrow gravel road. No power lines. Yeah, this looks like a logging road or something. Cat Hole Road is a hidden, unfinished crawl through the woods with deep potholes and warning signs everywhere, like trespassers will be shot, private property, and... Smile, you're on camera. Are oh. we so private property? Possibly. That's what I'm kind of thinking. This is super spooky. This is, <laughs> just that sign, smile, you're on camera? Yeah. It I park the car near one of these signs. It's riddled with bullet holes. Everyone was feeling nervous. I, however, apparently have a death wish because I got out of the car to record some footage. And this is what happened. As a documentarian, I cannot not take a picture of this. What do you feel here? I'm half expecting somebody to actually come down. Like what with a gun. What are you feeling? Just super, super fucking uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. Like I know that all the signs and everything like doesn't necessarily like help. Do you feel anything about Bernice? I can't tell. I can't tell. Because you're overwhelmed by the other feelings. Yeah. I can't tell if it's Bernice or not. There was just a gunshot. Yeah, I'm... I think we should be. Yeah, let's get out of here. I'm happy. I'm like... Okay. I don't... And, I mean, obviously, the signs are very, like, indicative. Like... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is for sure, like, textbook horror movie. We got back down that road in record time. Something I don't think my car's suspension will ever get over. But my takeaways from visiting this site are as follows. Cathole Road is a much more rural location than where Ellen was found. It speaks to the killer's motivation when taking Bernice here. He didn't want her to be found. Though it took a long time to locate Ellen, her body was arguably less hidden along a well-used jogging path. Since Bernice was an early victim, and perhaps the first if we discount Kathy Milligan and Betsy Critchley as related cases, then perhaps the killer was becoming more brazen with Ellen, and so on. This road is also surrounded by private property, so it's possible the killer had permission to be on this property, or if there's some other connection to the owner. I've since researched this angle, and so far, I haven't found anything of interest, but the question remains. I asked Dr. Philpin about Jim and his thoughts on him as a suspect. It's a self-contained kind of kind of paradigm where um, his illness is such that uh, he lacks the capacity to, to complete uh, complicated tasks. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the chief reason why you've kind of discounted him as a plausible person of interest right yeah it's easy for a community to look at an eccentric person yes uh or at behavior they don't understand and call them a witch oh yeah <laughs> well i think we did that at, um, was it salem massachusetts yeah, i think we did that. <laughs> 
Personally, I'm not inclined to believe Jim is responsible for these murders. In addition to what Dr. Philbin noted, I think it's easy to place blame on neurodivergent people or those with mental illnesses. I'm not giving him a pass on his behavior towards women, but Jim was sick and in need of psychological help. I spoke with Dr. Philpin about Jim off mic, and he counseled me to withhold his name. So I took that advice in the interest of protecting a vulnerable person. But despite this, people in the Valley still refer to the Connecticut River Valley serial murderer as the Kellyville Killer, alluding to Jim's guilt. I guess we'll never know for sure, but as far as I'm concerned, this lead has reached a dead end. After Bernice's body was recovered, the Keene Sentinel reports that a meeting was held in Claremont on April 28th of 1986. State and local police, as well as the New Hampshire Attorney General, met to discuss possible linkage between four different homicides. Finally, a task force was created to properly share information and pool investigatory experiences and resources. Law enforcement, of course, did not definitively say that there was a serial killer in New Hampshire, but it was certainly on their minds. After leaving Kellyville, Jane and I are driving back toward Keene, when Jane suddenly realizes that we're close to the cemetery where Bernice is buried, alongside her parents. We quickly stop at a roadside bodega, and Jane buys some flowers. Down the road, we pull through these enormous iron gates and into a rather peaceful place. It's green, well-watered, surrounded by trees. I think about what Toby said, that Bernice liked animals. I'm sure the deer graze quietly over her. When Jane finds Bernice's marker, I see her face fall. It's not even a stone. It's a piece of weathered plastic stuck haphazardly into the ground. Bernice Courdemanche, it reads, 1966 to 1984. But nestled in the ground behind it is a plastic butterfly. There, what a coincidence, she has a little butterfly right here behind her marker. Ah, oh, Bernice. Oh, look at that. It's a butterfly. Our flowers. flowers. Oh my gosh. That was her. I just got goosebumps. Look at that. She knows I'm here. I know. I don't see any other butterflies around. (laughs) Oh. Doing this for all the right reasons, Bernice. All the right reasons. I care. I care so much. And our stone is going to say never forgotten. If there's anything on that stone, it's going to say never forgotten. Next time on Dark Valley, another woman vanishes from the road to Claremont in broad daylight 
we end up solving a small mystery about where she was headed that day, which leads to more questions than answers. Dark Valley is produced, written, and edited by me, Jennifer Amell. It's also made possible by executive producers with Crawlspace Media, Tim Polari, and Lance Reinsterna. Follow us on social, at Dark Valley Show. Production assistants include Amanda Bedard and Marianne Stone-White. Show art by Pamela Robinson. Original theme song by Jennifer Paig. Please see the show notes for additional music credits, courtesy of Pixabay. And if you have a tip for any of these cases, please call the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or the Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit at 802-244-8781. Or you can write to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. Until next time.